Today, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics in finance, and that's the topic of mergers and acquisitions, commonly referred to as just M&A. The reason why I love this topic so much is because you know how I'm always talking about value and how value is created at the intersection of strategy and finance? Well, that's exactly what M&A is all about. Now, some transactions don't lead to value creation, but that's what we're going to talk about in today's episode. I'm going to share with you my experience from both a CFO perspective, where I've bought and sold companies. I'm also going to share with you my perspective from the consulting side, where I've advised organizations who are looking to acquire companies and sell their own company. So today you're going to get firsthand experience from the world of M&A. So let's get ready. Let's dive in. And what I want to do is I want to start off by talking about mergers. Now, there are three main types of mergers. And essentially a merger is when there are two companies and they're going to combine into one. They're going to merge. Okay, so that's the M part of M&A. There are three different types. The first one is a product extension merger. That's essentially when a company offers certain products and services, but they want to extend those offerings and maybe they want to start expanding their offerings to their customers. So let's just say uh, you have a plumbing company and the plumbing company also wants to provide HVAC and electrical services to its customers. It can do that by one of three ways. It can go out there and buy another company that's already offering those services. It can borrow ideas from other companies and incorporate that within its, its own business model. It could do a license agreement or a shared revenue type of agreement, or it could build that in-house. It could start an electrical company from scratch within its own framework. However, it's much easier and much faster to just go buy a company that already has those capabilities and the proven track record in the market. So a product extension is when a company says, hey, look, we want to offer more products and services to our customers. This company over here already does that. Let's merge together and join forces. As a CFO, I've done uh, product extension mergers with other companies, especially in the world of tech where you want to expand your solutions to your customers. Instead of trying to create that technology from scratch, which can take a long time, it may be a lot faster, especially if your strategy is speed to market, uh, to just go out there and buy that technology of another company and wrap it within your own business. Okay, so that's a product extension merger. The next one is a market expansion merger. This is when two companies, they sell the same product, but they're in different markets and you just want to combine together so you can expand your market reach. And then the last one is a horizontal merger. And this occurs between companies that are operating in the same industry and you just want to merge together. You want to take advantage of scale, which will lower your cost structure, which makes a lot of economic sense oftentimes. But those are the three types of mergers. So in today's episode, I'm going to be really quick on the M on the merger side, but I'm going to focus heavily on the A because part of the merger is you're going to be doing a lot of the things that you would do with the A or the acquisition. So I think that gives you enough information that you need, at least for mergers. Now, in order to do mergers, you're going to apply a lot of these principles that I'm about to talk about as it relates to acquisitions. So I love deals. I don't know what it is about deals. I just like love deals. I love going out there and acquiring companies. I just love the whole process of a transaction. But let me tell you, I've seen good acquisitions. I've seen bad acquisitions. I've been a part of good acquisitions and I've been a part of acquisitions that have gone sour. So I'm going to share with you uh, best practices and things that work 
when it comes to acquiring another company. So a big part of acquisitions includes what are called leverage buyouts, LBOs. Now a leverage buyout involves when a company or an individual seeks to acquire another company, typically using a significant amount of debt in order to finance the deal. So think of an LBO kind of like you're buying a house. You're going out there, you're buying this asset, the company, and you're going to take on a mortgage, which is debt in the in the case of a company. You're going to put a small fraction of equity into that home or into the business. And then ultimately the renter, if you rent it out, that renter is going to be servicing your debt through their monthly rent payments. So the same thing with the company, you go out there, you buy a company, you layer on a bunch of debt, you put in a little bit of equity from the free cash flow of the business. You're going to service that debt. You're going to grow the company that you just bought. You're going to make operational efficiencies. You're going to try to realize price improvements. You're going to try to realize cost synergies, improve the overall cost structure, maybe modify the pricing, but ultimately drive higher profits. And then you're going to flip it in three to five years. So that's how a leverage buyout works. Some examples of successful LBOs include Gibson greeting cards, Hilton hotels, and then the supermarket Safeway. These were all LBOs in the making. Now, why do LBOs occur? There are three primary purposes of an LBO. The first one is to make a public company private. So let's just say a company is out there, they're listed on the exchange, they're publicly traded, but maybe they're not performing super well. Maybe all the compliance requirements of being a public company is just creating all this complexity. It's slowing the business down. Well, a buyout firm or another company may decide to come in and take that company from being a publicly traded company and just make them private. They just buy them out, they buy out all the shareholders and they make it private. The other scenario includes spinning off a portion of an existing business. So that's another use case for LBOs. You have a business, they have a bunch of businesses, maybe that's not their core business anymore, maybe it's a distraction, or maybe they wanna raise cash, whatever the motivation may be but a company will spin off a a portion of an existing business and a company will come along and and buy that spun out portion of the business. When a company has multiple entities and they do this, it's called a carve out. Okay. So that's what's referred to as a carve out. You have a bunch of uh, businesses, they're operating independently. You carve one out, you sell it, you can raise cash, you can narrow in your focus it can help you drive your strategic direction more narrowly, but ultimately doing a spinoff is another use case for LBOs. And then the third one is carrying out a private property transfer. You may come in and buy out an owner or some type of shareholder within the business. And that's another example of when LBOs are used. Now in an LBO situation, okay, if you're a buyout firm, private equity firm, and you're buying a company, that's what we're going to be talking about primarily today. The other scenario is a company is just acquiring other businesses and that's not their profession. They're not a buyout shop, but let's just talk about if you are a buyout shop, you're, that's what you do for a living. You buy companies, you flip them and ultimately sell them. The way those are usually structured is that there's a general partner, a GP, the general partner puts in a small amount of equity. Then they go raise equity from other capital providers those capital providers are known as LPs, limited partners. And so the GP is ultimately managing this fund and they're making day-to-day operational decisions in the company that they're buying out. So these GPs and LPs, they combine their equity to buy a company. All right. So success 
in an LBO is measured by a metric called cash on cash, COC. And it's calculated as the final value of the equity investment at exit divided by the initial equity investment. And this is expressed as a multiple. So typically LBOs return two to five times cash on cash. So you can see if you're in the business of buying, improving and flipping companies, it could be very profitable because you're returning such a high amount on your cash. So buyout firms, how do those firms work? So typically they raise funds from large institutional investors like other corporations or state pension funds. So they're raising this debt here, issuing bonds in order to get that debt. Okay. They charge one and a half to 2% to investors, to their LPs for managing the capital. And then they get 20% of the profits, which is known as their carry or carried interest on the investments that they make. Now, these are all just typical ranges. You know, some buyout firms may get 15% of the carried interest, but just generally they charge one to 2% as a management fee. They get about 20% of the profits that varies and their hold period is typically three to five years. So they're going in, they're buying these companies and within three to five years, they're planning on improving the company, increasing the value, and they're going to flip it and sell it out there in the market. What's interesting is that sometimes LBOs will go in and they'll buy a publicly traded company. They'll take it private reduce all the complexity, all the compliance and everything else that's a distraction as a publicly traded company. They'll they'll grow the business, they'll improve profitability, and then they'll take it public again and that'll be their exit. But other times their exit includes selling it to another buyout firm, another private equity group, or they may sell it to another company that's looking to do a strategic investment. So that's how buyout firms operate. They're in the business of buying companies, combining a bunch of debt with their small equity investment, making improvements in the business, and then flipping it and selling it. Now, whether you're a private equity firm and this is what you're doing for a living, buying and selling companies, or you're a business looking to do acquisitions, or maybe you're an individual and you want to buy your first company, I want to lay out some search criteria, which you may find helpful. There's no specific order to these things, but here are 10 items to consider when you're looking to buy another company, when you're looking to do an acquisition. Number one is the experience of the existing team. So you want to look at the management team that's running the business. Number one is their credibility. Can they execute? Also, do they have the capabilities to take the company to the next level? If you're acquiring a company and you want to grow it, does that management team have what it takes in order to successfully grow the business and scale it while also increasing profitability. So the experience of the team is really, really critical. Also, you want to look for any key man risk, meaning that maybe you're looking at a company and they have a salesperson or they have a certain leader who oversees operations or whatever the case may be. But if this person were to leave, it would be a major disruption to the business. This is called key man risk. If that's the case, you want to be very careful. You want to either price that into your model or you want to steer clear of it. Because last thing you want to do is buy a company, they have key people leave, and then all of a sudden the business falls apart. Number two, you want to look at external advisors. Does the company have a strong advisory board? And do these advisors have influence out there in the market? And then will they stay if you acquire the business or will they skip out? So you want to consider the external advisors 
that the business is using. Also, does the company rely heavily on consultants? Same kind of thing. You know, what are those costs? How does that impact the acquisition? Uh, if you were to acquire the business and they were to leave, how would that impact the business? So that's the second consideration. Number three, you want to look at the revenue. So you want to look at the scale of the business. Buying smaller companies is challenging for a variety of reasons. Number one, smaller companies typically have weaker management, which means that maybe they're not as sophisticated when it comes to managing the business because they're wearing multiple hats. Maybe you have a president of the company and he or she is wearing multiple hats. They're doing sales. They're overseeing operations. They're trying to manage the financial and accounting operations of the company. But typically, you don't have uh, super strong management teams in smaller companies. They also lack systems. Typically, they lack systems. And that means that maybe their processes aren't well documented, which could be a problem once again if people leave or maybe you're buying the business and it's hard to roll that into an existing business model or to understand exactly how the company runs efficiently because they don't have repeatable systems. Also with smaller companies, you're trying to join employees and suppliers from different backgrounds and that could be challenging in itself. You want to be aware of that when you're buying smaller companies. So identifying the right revenue range is going to be really critical. So you want to have enough scale there for it to make sense. But the other part of revenue is its stickiness. You want to look for companies that have sticky revenue, meaning that if you raise prices, okay, like in an inflationary time period, like right now, if inflation's really ramping up and you need to bump your prices, you don't want to bump your prices and then lose a big bulk of your customers. So the stickiness of your customers, are they going to stay around or are they married to an existing owner or superstar of the business? And if he or she leaves, once again, your revenue goes with it. Also, just a recurring business model, like in construction, you know, revenue isn't super sticky because you're constantly going out there and you're bidding on projects and you're trying to win them. So it's all project-based. That revenue is not super sticky because it's not recurring versus like a SaaS business where you have subscriptions, the software is embedded within a company. They're not going to just switch and cancel their subscription. So therefore, uh, tech businesses, typically with the SaaS model, they have more sticky revenue. So you're, you're going to want to look at the stickiness of that revenue. That's going to be really critical. Number four in your search criteria is to consider profitability. Most acquisitions, unless you're doing a turnaround, are going to have profitability in the range of 5 to 15% when it comes to their pre-tax margins. So they have to have profitability. They have to have some type of track record. Otherwise, it may be difficult to finance that company because when you go out there to raise debt, these capital providers, they're going to want to look at a company's ability to service the debt and to meet debt covenants. And a big part of that is their profitability. Number five in the search criteria, looking at the deal structure. Does the deal structure make sense? Are there earnouts involved, which we'll get into here in a little bit, but how much debt, how much equity, what does it look like? What's the buyout period? So deal structure is going to be really critical. Number six is the target returns on equity. For most LBOs, those returns are going to range between 30 and 40% per year on a levered basis. So 30 to 40% levered rates of return. Number seven is geography. Is the acquisition target located in a geography that allows the company to have a competitive advantage for you to realize synergies for great accessibility? Like if you're buying this company and you have to fly in and do regular visits, you're going to want to make sure that it's in an area that's easy to travel to, uh, that you can get access to it. 
and that you know the geography well because every geography is going to come with different challenges. So you're going to want to be aware of that and consider that. Number eight, competitive advantages. Does the company have asset positional or, or capability advantages, which allows the the company to maintain this like moat around its cash flow, its cash flow stream. Because if you buy a business that doesn't have competitive advantages, then somebody else could copy that or you know, it's going to be difficult to raise prices or whatever the case may be, but you're not going to have an advantage in the marketplace and you may see that acquisition fail because those advantages aren't inherent. Number nine, customer concentration. So when I acquire a company, I always get a customer list. Even if they scrub the list and they don't provide me the specific customers, I want to see what percentage of revenue comes from the top 10 customers. And I want to make sure that there's not heavy concentration risk when it comes to customers. Because if you have one or two key customers and they make up 30, 40, 50% of the revenue, well, look, that could be super risky because if those customers go away after the acquisition or for any reason, let's take a quick break. All right. I have to interrupt the show, but I'll be super quick. I have a question for you. Who are you working for? Chances are you're working for everyone else besides yourself. Think about it. You're working for shareholders by grinding away in someone else's company. You're working for a bank by paying interest. You're working for the government by paying taxes. You're working for social media companies by giving your attention to their paid advertisers. You're working for your friends by doing crap that you don't want to do. You're working for everyone else by not pursuing the most essential things you are destined to achieve. Look, I've been there. I'm still there at times. Ugh, it could be so frustrating. If you want to achieve financial freedom, the fastest way to do it is through business. Don't get tricked by get-rich-quick schemes. Don't be fooled that your 401k is going to build you wealth. Don't waste time by trying to piece business finance together. Check this out. Here's my invitation. Go to byfiq.com, which stands for Boosting Your Financial IQ, Com and check out our programs. We have one for every possible path you're on. Whether your goal is to become fluent in business finance, launch a profitable business, or scale a business successfully, we have a solution to help you. I promise you, your life will change when you take action. So check out these opportunities that I've prepared for you. Now back to the show. You know, your revenue may significantly decrease, which will impact your profitability and your ability to service the debt. Number 10 is the ability to get out, to get your money out. So if you're buying a company, but you're buying it in an industry or a sector where there aren't a lot of buyers or there's no path to take it public, then it may be very difficult to get your cash out. So that three to five year time horizon that I was talking about for LBOs may not be doable if you can't get your cash out. So by taking the search criteria, you should make your own, but create your search criteria and make sure you define very specifically those items that you're looking for in a business because there's going to be so many opportunities out there typically when it comes to acquisitions and you're going to want to make sure that you have search criteria that matches your investment thesis and your required rates of return. Now, if you're doing a buyout, let's just say a target acquisition meets all those criteria, here are some things that you're going to want to do when you're doing a buyout, when you're doing an acquisition. Number one, you want to be fanatical about your due diligence. I've seen companies be very sloppy at this phase and they skimp out on due diligence 
or they ask for financial statements, legal docs, marketing docs, so on and so forth. They ask for all the information, but they're not asking the right questions. So be super fanatical about your due diligence. Make sure you're talking to the right people. If I'm buying a company, I'm definitely going to be talking to the CEO, the COO, the CMO, the CFO. Okay, If any of those roles have switched over in the recent past, I'm going to try to get in contact with those executives to make sure I understand their perspective. So if you have a CFO that just left the company and now the company's up for sale, you're going to want to talk to that CFO and see why exactly they left. But be super fanatical about your due diligence. Make sure you understand the business. Make sure you understand the performance of the company. When you're diving into the financials, make sure you're taking out one-off items. Okay, So if the company had this blowout year when it comes to revenue and profitability, make sure there's not one-time non-recurring things in those numbers. So for example, with the whole COVID and the relief funds that were available to companies through PPP loans, you want to make sure that that other income is not accounted for in the historical performance of the company. Otherwise, you're going to be paying a multiple on the bottom line that is inflated. You're also going to want to dive deep into the financials and really understand the story behind the numbers and make sure that there's not any window dressing going on when it comes to the financials. And what I mean by that is, you know, you could take financials and make them look pretty, not, not like fraudulently, but you can move things around or you could present the information in a way that maybe looks more attractive than it is. So make sure you do your due diligence, make sure you're getting tax returns, make sure you're ticking and tying everything out. Uh, in your due diligence process. Also look at contingencies. Are there pending lawsuits? Are there other risks related to insurance claims or any other things that may impact your investment after the acquisition is done? Number two, listen to your gut. This is a big thing as a CFO. I'd look at all things from a quantitative perspective, but I'd also tie in the qualitative side. And then I would trust my intuition. So your gut will often tell you, when something just does not seem right. And there have been deals where we've got past the due diligence phase, we are into the purchase agreement and it just didn't feel right and we just walked. You have to be very mindful of what your intuition is telling you. Don't just get so caught up into the numbers and to the quantitative side that you forget what your experience may actually be telling you, which gets into my next point. Number three, don't get blinded by the love of the deal. So some deals you just get so emotionally tied to. Maybe you're buying a brand that's really sexy in the marketplace, or you're going to acquire a company that's going to come with some status, or you really like a management team, or you're just really in love with their product. Whatever it may be, don't be blinded by the love of the deal. If the deal does not make economic sense and your intuition is telling you otherwise, it's saying, hey, look, maybe this deal isn't such a good idea. Like, Don't let yourself get blinded because... If it doesn't make sense before the deal is done, trust me, it's not going to make sense after the acquisition, which leads into my last point. When doing a buyout, go in with your eyes and ears wide open. Talk to as many people as you can, customers, employees, suppliers, competitors, and just keep your eyes and ears open and look for things that you otherwise may not see by maintaining an independent, unbiased perspective on the company. Now, you may be wondering when you're doing an LBO or when you're acquiring a company, how is the price set? That's a great question. And I'm going to tell you how you value 
another business. So there's YouTube videos. If you go to my channel, Boosting Your Financial IQ on YouTube, I have some videos that I put together that talk about levered and unlevered discounted cash flow models, DCF models. The DCF model is one approach to valuing a business. So there's the income approach. So you you build a model, the discounted cash flow model. You look at the free cash flow of the business that it's going to generate over your time horizon. And then the terminal cash value upon exit, and you discount that back to present day dollars. And that's how you determine the value of the business. That's basically known as the intrinsic value of the company, or in other words, the present value of all future cash flows that the business is expected to generate over its useful life. That's the income approach. The next way to value a business is through the market approach, which is taking a multiple of similar transactions that have already occurred in the space and then applying that to the business. So let's just say EBITDA. You may have a five or six times EBITDA multiple on the business and that's what other similar transactions have been going for. So then to value the business, you take the EBITDA, you multiply it by this five or six time multiple and bam, there you have the valuation of the business. The last approach is an asset-based approach where you're putting a value on all the assets of the business. So you could do any combination of these valuation methods, the income approach, the market approach, or asset-based approach, but really the income approach is the most common method for valuing a business. Like I said, check out my YouTube videos on an unlevered and levered discounted cash flow model and how that all works. They'll explain it in more detail. But ultimately, when you're doing an acquisition, you're building out this financial model. Okay, this discounted cash flow model. And I love building out models in Excel. I'm like such an Excel nerd and I love the discounted cash flow model. But here's the thing with the discounted cash flow model. There are a lot of assumptions within that model, like your cost of capital, growth rates, profit margin, exit multiples, and a slew of other metrics and drivers that are baked into the model. So you have to be very careful of that. But when you're doing evaluation, okay, there's an art to it. I want to talk about some things that you should consider that may impact the ultimate price that you're paying for the business. So number one is the pre-tax margins of the business. So if the company has lower margins than the industry average, you should likely discount the multiple. If it has higher margins, it means that it has a competitive advantage of some type because it's able to command higher margins compared to its rivals. And therefore you may be paying a premium when it comes to valuation. The next thing you're going to want to look at is growth. So similar to pre-tax margins, when it comes to growth, if the business is growing faster than competitors in the same space, then the company may be selling at a higher multiple. And then conversely, if the company that you're trying to buy is not growing as fast as its peers, it's going to get a lower valuation, which makes sense, right? But make sure that the growth rate hasn't been artificially inflated by sales promotions or other strategic tactics that aren't sustainable. So that's going to be very important. The pre-tax margins and the growth is going to be really critical. The next thing is going to be the future outlook of the business. So does the management team have the capabilities and skills necessary to grow the business, to grow that free cash flow into the future? Also, what does the market look like? 
Are there headwinds in the future which are going to damper growth, enable the company to really scale in the way that it needs to? So what does the future marketplace look like? Is there going to be customer concentration? Are there going to be more competitors entering in the space? Is it a mature industry? Is it a new industry? But looking at the future prospects of the company is going to be really critical. Maybe the company has a new product that it's about to launch and you want to get in early, you acquire the company because you know that after this product launches, the numbers are going to skyrocket. So just understanding what does the future potential of the business look like? The next thing is customer concentration and diversification. You're going to want to make sure that uh, the majority of the sales aren't coming from just a few customers. And you're going to want to make sure that there's diversification in that customer set, because if all customers are similar and something happens to those customers, your revenue may decrease substantially and impact ultimately your profitability and your ability to service the buyout debt. Scale, can the company scale quickly without requiring a huge investment in capital expenditures? So if you can put in a little bit of money, invest a little bit of money in the company and you can grow the company quickly off that marginal investment, that could be a great company. If the company requires heavy investment in order to scale, then that may be really challenging to get the growth that you really want out of it. What about the history? Looking at the history of the business and making sure that earnings are consistent over time. And it's not some phenomenon that has occurred just recently. So look at the history of the performance, look at the history of the management team, and that'll give you a really good gauge whether or not you are overpaying or underpaying as it relates to the valuation of the business. Also look at the seller's motivations. So the motivation of the seller also impacts the price. If they're desperate to sell, obviously it's going to be selling at a discount. If they are desperate to sell, you're going to want to understand why they want to get out so badly. So if the company is not super motivated to sell, you may have to sweeten your deal and pay more in order to buy that company. And then also another thing to consider is rival bidders. So if it's out there in the marketplace and there are other companies looking at the, the company and it's attractive, you're, you may have to pay more in order to acquire that company. If it's just a silent offer, those are great. When you just go in there, you're the only bidder and you just offer them a great deal then you, uh, you typically don't overpay for those types of transactions. So those are some things that impact the value of a business. And like I said, check out my YouTube videos that will walk you through how to build a levered or unlevered discounted cash flow model. And it'll give you a better visual of how you actually value a business. But ultimately, you're buying the cash flow stream of a business. That's what you're doing. That's how intrinsic value is determined. It's the present value of all future cash flows that you hope that the business will generate. And hopefully you're buying a business and then you're able to go in there and maximize cash flows and then sell it within three to five years. And that's when you can do really, really well from an LBO perspective. Now, there are three documents that are typical in transactions involving mergers and acquisitions. The first one is just a term sheet. The term sheet is going to be non-binding and it's just going to lay out the terms of the deal. Okay. Here's a proposed valuation range. Here are some other requirements of the deal. Here's how it may be structured. This is how due diligence will go down. It'll outline who pays for what initially and just timing and everything else. So it's just a list of terms. It's non-binding and it just gets the ball rolling. The next document is a letter of intent. Now the main difference between the two is that a term sheet 
is simply a document that lays out the terms that both parties wish to include. But usually neither party signs a term sheet. With an LOI, a letter of intent, both parties usually sign the LOI. But there are a lot of things in an LOI that could still be non-binding. Then once those things are agreed upon, then you move into the purchase agreement. And it's important to knock out the terms, the basic terms up front, because it's not like you want to jump to the purchase agreement right away when you don't even have agreement on the the terms from the get-go. That's why there's a progression of those documents. So you issue a term sheet, say, hey, look, I'm interested. Here's some of the terms of the deal. You move on to an LOI. Somebody's signing it. You, You feel more comfortable that there's agreement. You move on to the purchase agreement. Then there's a lot of negotiation and then you're you're closing the deal with the purchase agreement. I want to touch on earnouts really quickly and then I'm going to share a personal story and then we'll wrap up this episode. Now earnouts are a common approach that partially pays the seller out of the future earnings of the business. So the idea here is that a buyer and seller, they don't know exactly how the business will perform in the future and if it performs really well, the seller may believe that they get a piece of that upside. So let's just say the company is making $20 million in profit and you're buying the company for $120 million. The seller may get 20% of the pre-tax profits that are above $20 million for the first three years. So oftentimes when companies are selling, this may be a way to entice a seller to actually give up their company. So you say, Hey, look, you know, like we'll buy your company for, you know, a hundred million dollars. And the seller's like, well, I don't know, because like we've, we've implemented a lot of things. We just launched this product. It could be worth $150 million. And as an LBO operator, you may say, look, I need to limit my downside. So I'll make you a deal. I'll pay you a hundred million dollars for sure. But if the company performs well, you know, then I'll pay you additional money above and beyond the agreed upon purchase price. This is known as an earnout. Now, my advice is to be careful of earnouts because a lot of times there are misaligned incentives, especially if people are going to stay on board for a few years after the acquisition and their performance is heavily dependent on the earnout. Because let's just say their earnout is based on profitability and they're going to stay on board. Well, they may make short-term decisions for the business that drives up profitability. However, it's going to impact the longevity of the business and the sustainability of those margins. So you're going to want to make sure that you're super careful with earnouts. I've had a lot of horror experiences when it comes to earnouts, but I've also seen some that work pretty well. So you want to make sure that you're super clear on defining certain terms. So therefore, if you're basing the earnout on profitability, make sure you, you define, okay, what line item are you basing that on? Is that operating profit? Is that net income? Does it include interest expense? Does it include depreciation, amortization? Does it include shared or allocated expenses from a parent? You're going to want to make sure all those things are detailed out and in writing so there's no confusion later on when it's time to pay the earnout. All right, so that's enough about the earnout. So let me share a little story with you. As I've said before, I've done a lot of acquisitions throughout my career as a CFO. I've also been involved in acquisitions as an advisor. But also, let me just tell you, like I went to go buy a company several years ago. And this company was a business that I was consulting. I knew the owner really well. I built out my model. It made sense. I had the capital all lined up to do the deal. 
But at the end of the day, the price kept going up because there are other people bidding on the same company. And when I looked at my model, and this goes back to me saying, don't fall in love with a company and be blinded by it. Don't let the emotions get in your way of true economic reality. And that's, that's what I had to discipline myself on. So I, I looked at the business model. I did the valuation. You know, I, I tried to tweak things even when the price went up and the, the seller came back to me and said, hey, can you sweeten your deal a little bit? It, he really wanted me to buy his company. But when I looked at the economics, it just did not make sense. And I wasn't willing to overpay for that company. So you have to be super careful because when market conditions are going really well, a company may have higher than normal profit margins. And therefore, if you're buying a company based on margins, like free cash flow or profit margins or whatever it may be, you may be paying a lot at a peak of a market cycle. And you just want to be careful because otherwise you're going to be buying a company and it may not provide the return that you're looking for. Remember the cash on cash two to five times on your money in three to five years, it may be hard to obtain that if you're overpaying for an acquisition. So you want to be very mindful of that. Also, like buying a company, remember there's the post-acquisition phase. So after you acquire the company, you have to integrate systems, you have to onboard new employees, you have to make sure that there's a new strategy in place. There are so many things post-acquisition that you have to consider. Make sure that does not get lost in the whole process because it's exciting to do deals. It's exciting to look forward to closing on a deal but then after you close on the deal, you have to make sure that it's integrated properly into your overall business. Or if it's the first time buying a business and you go out and buy a company after the acquisition is made, you're going to want to make sure that you go in there, you embed a strategy, you strengthen the culture, you really invest in the people and you drive growth. So it's a great business model to do LBOs. I love the idea of private equity and I just love this topic because you know, you can buy a company, you can really enhance the value of the firm if you know what you're doing. And there's so much value to be captured. And that value benefits so many people's lives, even the employees' lives, because a lot of times they participate in the upside. And if they don't participate directly, their lives are enhanced because the company is ran in such a better manner. And it just improves the quality of life for so many people. So that's my talk on mergers and acquisitions. I hope you found that helpful. Be sure to go to my YouTube channel where you can learn more about building models, about how this all works if you're interested. But thanks for joining me today. And in the meantime, take care. Hey, real quick, if you get value out of this podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would leave us a review. Also, if you want to be featured on the show, send me a recording with your name, your age, where you're from, and your question through a voice note or a video using your smartphone. Then email me the file at hello at byfiq.com. BYFIQ stands for boosting your financial IQ. So once again, it's hello at BYFIQ.com. If selected, I'll give you a shout out and answer your question for you and the entire community. One last thing. If you want access to additional resources that will help you fast track your path to financial freedom, visit BYFIQ.com or download our free app in the Apple or Google Play app store today. Thanks again. Hey, real quick, 
If you get value out of this podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would leave us a review. Also, if you want to be featured on the show, send me a recording with your name, your age, where you're from, and your question through a voice note or a video using your smartphone. Then email me the file at hello at byfiq.com. BYFIQ stands for Boosting Your Financial IQ. So once again, it's hello at byfiq.com. If selected, I'll give you a shout out and answer your question for you and the entire community. One last thing, if you want access to additional resources that will help you fast track your path to financial freedom, visit byfiq.com or download our free app in the Apple or Google Play App Store today. Thanks again.